um, sessions, whatever, on the temple vision of Ezekiel. And I could probably do like 16 weeks. So I'm, there's not every, every single thing I am not going to, um, I'm not going to be able to talk about as much as I want. So what I want to do is whet your appetites with what? The, the challenge of the promise of Ezekiel. Now, I want to remind us, as we do every time we study a book, here's the danger. We get, we start zooming in on things and we forget the purpose of the book. So if you remember, this book begins with Ezekiel in a refugee camp. He's been taken a refugee. He's, he's in Babylon. And as he's there in Babylon, um, he is visited um, by the glory of the Lord. God comes to him on his throne chariot and calls him a prophet to the refugees. In, yeah, I know, I have a spoon. Everybody wants to warn me about my spoon. This, Hannah said if I'm her friend, I will keep this spoon in my pocket. So for all the people wondering about the spoon in my pocket, this is to show Hannah that I'm her friend. See? Because I don't care if I look dumb to a million people. Because the reality is three people watch my videos anyway, so it'll be okay. Um, so, <laughs> so, so when we, so we want to see it. Okay, the glory of the Lord comes to and calls Ezekiel. Then chapter 8, 7 and 8, God says to Ezekiel, here's the problem, Ezekiel. He takes him back to Jerusalem. He shows him Jerusalem's a mess. <coughs> They're worshiping idols. The, the leadership and the priesthood and the people. There's nobody that is not a part of the, of the false worship back in Jerusalem. So God tells Ezekiel, this place is going to fall. You remember I told you most of the people believed in the refugee camp. We're the ones God doesn't like because we're here. Because sometimes when we look at our circumstances and we're someplace we don't like, we think, well, this is, this is God's getting me for all them things I did wrong. In my life. And so I'm experiencing hard times. You guys remember the story of Job, right? So he that that message, Ezekiel is coming back and saying, that's not the case. You are the generation that's going to restore the generation that's going to restore the temple and Jerusalem. You guys are the hope for the future. Now that's not how they saw themselves. But that's what God's going to deliver to them through the prophet Ezekiel. Now, the people have a hard time understanding that. As we've gone through and we talked about all the prophetic parts and the, and the concepts as God's bringing his judgment uh, upon Jerusalem, Jerusalem has fallen, and then Ezekiel lifts his eyes to the future. And we have Ezekiel 38 and, thir uh, and 39, chapter 37, the Valley of Dry Bones. We talked about all that. You probably, I probably can't rehearse it for you, but... All of those things are looking for God's once and final deliverance from evil, from wickedness, the resurrection, the restoration, not only of the nation, but a new heaven and a new earth and a new hope forever. And we come to chapter 40 to 48. And as we look at 40 and 48, we've talked about a lot of things. And here's the challenge when we come to reading and interpreting scripture. I told you last time, your biggest danger is the things you're pretty sure you already know. We, I know the things I know because of the people who taught me the things I know. Do you know that? I know people who are, are um, framers. 
And the guys who taught them how to frame taught them a particular way, and they do it a certain way. But you know what? You get around another group of framers, and they can frame the same building, but they'll do it different. I wonder why they do it different. There's only one way to do it. Because they were taught a different way. Which way is the best way? I don't know, but maybe being exposed to it all helps us understand what's really going on. So we want to be able to be exposed to the things the scripture challenges us with. So we want to read the Bible deeper, slower, meditatively. We want to look for connections. I told you last time about a particular connection. You remember? 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 38 tells us, It took Solomon seven years to build his temple. According to 1 Kings chapter 8, he dedicated it on the Feast of Booths, which is the seventh month, and which in Deuteronomic uh, tradition is the festival that lasts for seven days. Moreover, the speech in which Solomon dedicated the temple is structured around seven petitions. I'm asking, is that just an accident? If you or I were sitting down to write a message, my wife does this all the time. What do you call those things? She does alliterations. If you heard Kathy do a bunch of alliterations, like she did some things on, on Facebook, uh, where it was all the letter C or all the letter P or all I, my mind melts. If you heard that, would you say, wow, do you, did you notice she just accidentally used every word starts with the same letter? Would you do that? Or would you say, is there something that, I'm, that is trying to be told to me? What's trying to be told to us in terms of the temple, Solomon's temple, is that the temple is associated with the Sabbath. The Sabbath is what day? Seventh day. And the Sabbath is our day of rest. Our rest is Christ as New Testament believers. And what does the New Testament say is the temple? The Jesus said, is destroy this temple and I will do what? I'll raise it in three days. So where do we find rest as believers? In Christ who is the temple who is associated with our Sabbath rest. All of these things, there's connections. This is what I'm talking about when I say come to the Bible. Don't just come with a rake. Don't be in a hurry. Don't be in a rush. Don't just run through things. Take your time. Look for connections one of the interesting things is when i when i am going through scripture and i'm looking for connections is i'm not looking for something nobody's ever heard of before oftentimes when i run into something nobody's ever heard of before i realize it's probably in my head right i'm like oh i can't be having the one original thought it just makes me nervous that i'm the only guy having the one original thought so the next thing I do is I go searching through the scholars and I look for discussions, papers, writings where people talked about these connections. Some guys have made their entire life just to write about one aspect or another of the temple. Which means there's a lot there to look at, chew on. We want to be good students. I'll give you another one. Let's say Jesus on the cross, right? He's on the cross. You guys remember Jesus on the cross? He said, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. 
which means, oh, is that just random? Is he accidentally making that? What's he saying? Is he, what's, what's, he, what's he trying to express? What's the connection? The connection is Psalm 22, where David wrote, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why would the authors write that for us? They would write that for us so that we would go, Hey, my God, my God, I've heard that somewhere. These are not, the, the people who are standing around the cross, they know the word, don't they? They've sung the Psalms their whole life for their worship. So they go, hey, why is he quoting the first line of Psalm 22? What's it say in Psalm 22? They go, they look, and it's a description of what's going on in the cross, behind the scenes, in the demonic realm, in the spiritual realm. And it's going to use the same phrases that we see in the gospel of Christ. For example, they stick their tongue out at me. They say, wait, let the Lord save him. He said he delighted in the Lord. Surely the Lord will deliver him. Isn't that the same thing Jesus was experiencing? So when we, we're looking for connections. So I'm going to talk, we've been talking about these connections with Ezekiel. Now we can come to Ezekiel and we can just be blown away by all the numbers. And we can say, this is crazy. There's, there's, but there's connections here. And we got a lot to do. And I've already said too many things. So there's probably going to be a session five. So I promised you guys last week visual representations of the descriptions that we were reading about. Okay? So I have three videos that are going to take you through the chapters in the same way Ezekiel is going to be led by the angel and given different measurements and give you a chance to kind of picture what does the structure look like. So... Let's see if it works.
works. Okay, so when we, when we look at that, it gives us an idea of what we're looking at. Okay, this, these are the measurements taken. Now, if you remember last time when we talked about it, I said some of the things, some of the measurements um, verge on caricature. Do you see the size of the gates? Those gates are 10 stories tall. That's a big gate, right? So there are, there, there are some things that we want to be open to. We want to be looking for connections. I have a question for you. The first temple was destroyed, Solomon's temple, right? The Jews did 70 years in captivity, right? They had the prophet Daniel and the prophet Ezekiel delivering their prophecies. When the 70 years was completed, Cyrus comes on the scene and he sends the, the uh, children of Israel, releases them to go back and rebuild their temple, right? Why didn't they use Ezekiel's measurements? See, we look at Ezekiel from the year 2021, but it was delivered before the second temple was ever built. And part of my argument would be, if that was intended to be instructions for building the temple that led to Messiah and the kingdom, surely the Jews knew that. But they never built to those specifications. Not the initial one that was, uh, that was built in uh, Ezra and Nehemiah's time, and not under Herod's reconstruction that leads us to Christ. Which is why people say, well, it's the millennial temple. It's a temple for the millennium. And it may be. But my question still stands. When they went to rebuild the temple, if this was the temple that Ezekiel saw the future and they're rebuilding the temple, why didn't they use the measurements? I'm going to say it's because they understood the connection. They understood that the words, like the words of Jesus on the cross when he said, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, led them to Psalm 22, that the words in the opening of the prophecy in Ezekiel chapter 40, verse 1, led them to Leviticus 25. And when it did, it told them something that we won't get to tonight. It told them, I'm going to tell you, and then I'll give you the, I'll give you the rest of the pieces next time. We'll, we'll try to get through some of the rest of it tonight. It told them there was going to be between Daniel chapter 9 and Ezekiel 40 to 48, there would be 10 jubilees until Messiah delivered the world in a day of atonement that would forgive their sin. 10 jubilees is, by the way, according to Daniel, 490 years. You know how we would get to that in Daniel? 77s are determined for your people to make an end of sin. Well, there's seven promises there, but, but the idea, 77s, how was a year of Jubilee counted? 49 years, and then the next year was Jubilee. 49 years, next year, Jubilee. That's the way Daniel, Daniel counted it by 49s. In the measurements and the stuff we're going to look at on the temple, 60 times you are going to see numbers that are going to point, point to 50. 
60 references that are uh, multiples or divisions of the number 50 over and over and over and over again. And when you look at the size of the entire structure, you have 10 50-year cycles, which I will say is pointing them to the ultimate deliverance. You know what happened in 10 jubilees? You have to come back next week because I'm not going to have time to tell you this week. So, but here's the things we are going to talk about. Two, two things we need to get through tonight so I can talk about all the Jubilee stuff next time. Or hopefully that whets your appetite. If it don't, sorry. Um, one, part of the language in chapters 40 to 48, I hope you're still reading it and listening to it. Part of the language that they use is what we call cosmic mountain language. Cosmic mountain language is language that points to the dwelling place of God. It's just a way of saying the dwelling place of God. In the ancient Near East, in ancient cultures, where did they say the gods lived? Where were the gods of, of Greece? Where were they? Mount Olympus. So Mount Olympus was the mountain of God. Okay, so the, the idea was in ancient cultures. The Bible uses a language similar to say the mountain of God. Where's the place where God has written his name? Where, where all these things surround this place. That everything, the Bible actually uses this term, that it's the center of the world. It's Jerusalem, Mount Zion, the place where God has written his name. This is what the Bible calls the cosmic mountain, the great mountain of the north. Now, if you've been with me to Israel, you know it's not a great mountain, right? There's mountains around here way taller. That the point of it being a great mountain is, is who it represents. Who is the God of this mountain? Psalm 48. I don't have time to read the whole thing. You guys can check it out. Listen to what it says. Psalm 48. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, which is his holy mountain. Beautiful in elevation. The joy of how much of the earth? All of the earth, Mount Zion in the far north. It's not a location. The far north is the idea that this is the mountain of God, the city of the great king. Daniel, when Daniel saw the vision of all the kingdoms of men, you guys remember, we got the head of gold, chest of silver. Everybody tracking with me, Daniel? I shifted gears. You're going to have to be mental acuity. You're going to need it tonight and next week. So Daniel saw the vision. Nebuchadnezzar had the dream. Daniel gives the interpretation, right? The dream, the statue represents four different kingdoms of men. Yeah, remember Babylonian, Medo-Persian, Greek, Rome, right? Everybody tracking with me? Then a stone from the heavens, not cut out by hands, men didn't make this stone, strikes the statue in its feet, and what happens to the statue? It turns to powder. And that stone grows into what? A great mountain that does what? Fills the whole earth. What's the kingdom of God do? It's a great mountain. Fills the whole earth. These are references to the kingdom of God, the glory of God, right? Micah chapter 4, verse 1 and 2 says, It shall come to pass in the latter days 
that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the highest of the mountains. It shall be lifted up above all the hills, and all the people shall flow to it. This is not language that says one day God's going to make Jerusalem the tallest mountain in the world. This is language that says the kingdom of God is going to be central to all the earth and all the peoples will come to worship there. Now, have we read scriptures throughout the, the Old and New Testament that talk about the kingdom of God in that way? Yeah, we have. We've seen these pictures. We've seen these things described. And we have this same language in Ezekiel. In Ezekiel 38, okay, just briefly, we'll, we'll back up for a moment. It says, <coughs> and, excuse me. Uh, speaking of uh, Gog and Magog, this is what the Lord tells him. The Lord, the Lord is going to drive him to do this. I, <coughs> okay, Jackie, slow down or you're going to choke on your tongue. I will go up against the land of unwalled villages. I will fall upon the quiet people who dwell securely, all of them dwelling without walls, having no bars or gates, to seize spoil, carry off plunder, to turn your hand against the waste places that are now inhabited, and the people who, are, who were gathered from the nations who have acquired livestock and goods who dwell, where does it say? At the center of the earth. Now, he's not saying that this is physically the center of the earth. But he is saying all of history, everything about the earth centers around the things that are taking place in Jerusalem. It is of central importance because it is the place of God. It is where his glory resided in the ancient Near East, right, before the, before the temple was destroyed by the Babylonians, and it is the center of the place where it will once again dwell. Everybody tracking? That makes it the center of the earth. Center doesn't mean actual center. It means most important place. The most important thing you're going to have in your life is not going to be how much money you can make, how big your house is, how nice a motorcycle you, you ride, if you don't have a motorcycle, I'm sorry. You should probably fix that. Um, it's not any of those things. What's the most important thing? Your relationship to God. That's it. He is central. You think that's going to help? I've never had water before. Thanks, son. So, wow, that actually didn't taste bad. Maybe I should drink that more often. Okay, uh, Ezekiel 5.5. 5. Thus says the Lord God, this is Jerusalem. I have set her in the center of all the nations with countries all around her. What is God saying? Now, in the old days when people thought the earth was flat, they used to say Jerusalem is the center of the world. And then one day somebody figured out how to do a map and they realized, oh, Jerusalem's not the center. Right? Everybody knows. It's not the center, but it is the center of everything that has anything to do with God. It is, he could have put his name anywhere. It's not because it was a great place. It's just God made it great by putting his presence there. That's going to be a key understanding. If you've read the book of Ezekiel, what's the name of the city in Ezekiel 48? It's not Jerusalem, it gets changed. What's the name of the city? Anybody know? You guys don't do your homework. The name of the city is Yahweh Shammah, or the Lord 
is here. The Lord is present. That's what makes it central. So when you have this kind of language in prophetic, apocalyptic texts, it, we're looking for connections. We're looking for connections to the kingdom of God. We're looking for things bigger than just the physical descriptions of buildings that we have. We're looking for those kind of connections. So we want to see where those kinds of connections are. Now, here's what we... Here's what we, we, we have, maybe I'll try to, maybe I'll try to get this in. Let's see if we can get it in. Okay, so the, the idea here, Ezekiel 43, 13 through 15, says, These are the measurements of the altar by cubits, a cubit being a cubit and a handbreadth. Its base shall be one cubit high, one cubit broad. Remember the picture of the altar we saw in the middle of the video with the stairs going up? This is what he's describing here. From the base on the ground to the lower edge, two cubits and a cubit and a breadth of one cubit. And from the smaller ledge to the larger ledge, four cubits and the breadth of one cubit. And the altar hearth, four cubits from the altar hearth projecting upward to the four horns. Now we look at that and all we saw was measurements, right? So the English really obscures the Hebrew. And here... The Hebrew matters. We have a reference here in verse 14 to the altar being the base on the ground. The Hebrew is mekek ha-aretz, which means the bosom of the earth. Let me say it to you another way. The center of it all. What's the center of everything? The altar. What's the altar point to? Sacrifice of who? Yeah. You start to see? The altar is the bosom of the earth. That's what's being described. The measurements go from the bosom of the earth. It's not about where's the ground. It's like, hey, we're talking about we're talking about the bosom of the earth. And Levinson quoted it like this. It could be translated the navel of the earth. It's an idea of utter and total centrality. Here's what Levinson said. He said this, this is one of the, the scholars that, that I read. He talks about the, you remember last time we talked about the organization of the tribes around the temple. In the original temple that we have in Jerusalem, all the tribes were north of it, one tribe was south of it. But in this temple, they surround it. Why do they surround it? Because the temple is central. Think about the theme of Ezekiel. When we talked about Ezekiel, Ezekiel's a refugee. The glory of God comes to the refugee camp. He's like, wow, what's the glory of God doing here? We're the outcasts. No, God says, you are not the outcasts. You are the future. Those people back in Jerusalem, they, they have utterly rejected me. He takes them in a vision back to Jerusalem. He shows them the, the reality of their sin. And then before Ezekiel leaves in Ezekiel chapter 8, the glory of God departs. Ichabod. The glory departed. He's not there. He left. Does God dwell in a building? Does he need a building to be if there's not a building, God doesn't know what to do. He just floats around. No. God does, the building is for who? The building is for us. 
So the glory departed. It came to the refugee camp to say, you guys are the future. In chapter 43, in the new temple, we, we saw it in the video, what happens? The glory, the, the throne chariot of God, what did it do? It came back. Now, I'm going to refer to you to Revelation 21 and 22 when we talk about that. Because who's the temple? We, John told us. John is going to repurpose Ezekiel language. He's giving us commentary on what Ezekiel's talking about. When he's talking about Jesus Christ as the temple of God. Paul's going to repurpose what Ezekiel's talking about. When he's talking about you and I corporately as the body of Christ are the temple of God. Where the glory of God resides. So we are looking. Ezekiel is seeing. He doesn't understand what he's seeing. He's looking far into the future. He's seeing the restoration of his people in the first mountain, but there's other mountain ranges behind it, right? Are you guys tracking with me? He's delivering to us the things that he sees. We want to be able to see all the things that tie these things together. Okay, now I want to talk about the prince. I want to talk about the prince. So you get, I just want to just trying to feed you. Well, I'm not going to talk about the prince because it's already 8 o'clock. Lord, have mercy on my soul. So, we're going to talk about the prince next week. We're going to talk about the year of Jubilee, and we're going to talk about Ezekiel 47, the vision of the river of water that flows out of the temple of God, and Revelation 22, 1 through 5. I would encourage you to read those two things. And begin to see all the pieces start to fall together. Is, is Ezekiel describing a building? For sure he's describing a building, but does it have to be a physical building? I don't know. Maybe it is. Maybe it is, but there sure is a lot of other things that connect to it. And wait till you hear the year of Jubilee stuff's crazy. You have, I don't even know if I can do that next week. We'll see. So I'm going to talk about the prince, the Nasi. And I'm going to talk about year Jubilee, Ezekiel 47, Revelation 21, 22. And that will be the bow that we tie it up in. Okay. So you've seen pictures of it. I want you to see the, the, the point of Ezekiel. Why is Ezekiel telling this story? And whatever our interpretation, as we work our way through Ezekiel 40 through 48, this is what it has to do. It has to bring hope to the refugees to whom it was given because Ezekiel 40 to 48 was delivered to people a long time ago so it, it's got to deliver hope to them right about their future the glory departed Ezekiel we have a prophet in our midst here in a refugee camp oh here's a prophecy about the glory of God returning the, the, the land's going to be restored. We're, we're going to go back. All those things have happened, right? But I want you to keep in mind the importance of the centrality of the temple. And next time we're going to talk about the leadership. That's what the prince represents. The prince represents the leadership. In our world and in their world prior to the exile, they had those two things switched. What was central? The king. What was secondary? The temple. 
what is Ezekiel telling them to get right? The temple needs to be central. The leadership should be built around service to God in the temple. So we'll talk about that next time. Amen. Hopefully I whet your appetite. The night goes fast. Anybody notice that? Okay. Is the clock right? I guess it is. Let's pray. I got like 17 more pages. Oh, Lord, you know. God, I just pray uh, as we consider these things, there's so many exciting, exciting things to see in this last part of Ezekiel. And I just want to encourage us as Bible students, as men and women who come to the word, want to know the word, want to want to embrace the word, want to grow in the word, want to have a comprehension of the word. The Bible describes people who come to the word of God as students who are diligent, not lazy, who are here to rightly divide the word of truth. So we pray, God, you guard us from error. Keep us on track by your spirit. Lead us, but challenge us. Lord, you told us in the word that the secret things are yours, but it's the glory of kings. Well, let's put it like this. It's the glory of leaders to search the secret things out. Because, God, I want to know you. I want to understand you. I want to recognize the things that are going on. I want to be able to see the fingerprints of God around my life and throughout the pages of Scripture. For no Scripture is given to us that it just doesn't matter. It's just words or numbers or names. It all has something to teach us, to show us. Help us be students, God, who want to know. As we go from this place, God, I pray we'd be encouraged. I pray, I know, I know it's hard to, to listen to the things that are going on in Ezekiel 40 through 48, but I just pray that we would take the time, be committed to just say, Lord, speak to me. I want to know you. If the things Jesus said is right and he is the temple, then the description we have in Ezekiel 40 to 48 will tell us something about him. Just like the tabernacle did before. And the temple of Solomon before that. So God, we pray, eyes to see, ears to hear the glory that you are giving us through your word in Jesus' name. Amen.